Hey there. You got a bunch of leads, but too swamped to make heads or tails out of them? When it comes to sealing the deal, you just throw out a number and hope for the best? Well, it's time to change that too. Welcome to the Million Dollar Pipeline Challenge, tailor-made for the home services and remodeling pros just like you. We're cutting through the clutter, showing you how to chat with your customers and nail your pitches and boost those conversions. No more guesswork, just solid strategies to grow your business. Tune in to transform your approach and let's build that million dollar pipeline together. Text the word money to 844-949-1984. That's the word money to 844-949-1984 to begin your million dollar pipeline challenge today. Welcome to Blue Collar BS, a podcast that busts the popular myth that we can't find good people, highlighting how the different generations of today, the boomers, Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z are redefining work so that the industrial revolution that started in the U.S. stays in the U.S. The Blue Collar BS podcast helps blue collar business owners like you build a business that will thrive for decades to come by turning that blue collar BS into some blue collar business solutions. In this episode, you're going to learn about the opportunity to fly or walk. Also about automation and how it actually increases job satisfaction. Also learn about understanding that automation is changing manufacturing architecture and being on the line before changing the line. Our guest today is Ian Rush, a millennial and self-proclaimed automation nerd. His strength is getting automation projects done by allowing the blue-collar and white-collar teams. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the show, Brad. How are you doing today? I am wonderful, Mr. Doyle. It is a great day here in the state of Wisconsin. It hasn't rained in like a freaking month, which is which I think is driving people crazy here. I think it's really getting people in people's nerves. The summer, it's not a traditional summer. It's been warm, hot, sunny, like Florida, and we're not used to that here. We haven't gotten the cold. We haven't gotten the rain, and I think people are getting stir-crazy with that. I would have never thought that that would create people to be stir-crazy there. I just thought they were always crazy. So we'll just... Right. We are. <laughs> we are. We are. How are things going in the uh, Detroit neck of the woods? Football you know, season's coming upon us. Preseason's here. I mean, come pre-season on. Preseason is here, finally. Preseason is here. So, you know, it's it's interesting. Somebody that lives in Wisconsin is a Lions fan. Someone that lives in Michigan is not a Lions fan. Kind of think that's uh, really interesting. <laughs> it's okay. I get lots of sympathy all the time from my pack of friends and Bears friends around here. Yeah. They're like, oh, we're sorry. Okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so... Brad, who do we got on the show today? So today we have Ian Rush on the show and his area of awesomeness, right? He is uh, deals with the scope and execution of automation projects. His strength is when he needs to get that shit done ASAP, he gets it done. He, he is working on scaling automation inside of America so that we can from my perception, bring in younger talent to not do mundane, stupid shit so they can bring more value to their organizations. And we are uh, very pleased to have Ian on today's show. Welcome, Ian. Thank you. It's, not, it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Did I, did I kind of get that right on the automation piece is what you're trying to do here? Yeah, you said it great. I'm right. Th- I uh, wrote down a few of those because I'm like, <laughs> oh, that sounds better than the way I say it. Sure. <laughs> 
That's awesome. <laughs> hey, so before we get started, Ian, can you uh, let us know which generation you uh, uh, fit in with? I am a millennial. Ooh. Just so you're like Steve. Oh, Born in 89. No. <laughs> We're not even close. He's like, you know, a whole generation away from me. Whatever. Hey, I played I played original Nintendo as a kid, but I did not play arcades. Oh. I already hear that. So I remember playing Turkey Shoot or the Turkey Hunt game. I remember okay. playing the original Mario. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so you, didn't get, you didn't get the opportunity to go spend time in the bars with your parents on Saturday mornings or whatever nope. and ask for quarters. Right. <laughs> no, I was yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Nintendo was my jam, but yeah, I'm uh I was born in 89 and I'm the youngest of four, so my four siblings made sure that I was properly indoctrinated with the 80s. And yes. uh you yes. know, I, so I, I was surprised when when someone explained to me what I was, I was like, "Am I really a millennial though?" cuz I don't really fit in with my people if that's the case. Yeah. And uh, that- apparently and there's a lot of that. It's just it's our it's our way to categorize, and, and then we have people sure. identify and show that yeah I'm, we're not in that space, and that's part of why we did this show is to be able to show look there are good people across all generations, across all things. Mm-hmm. So when old old fuddy duddies like myself go oh that young kid doesn't know what boomers. they're doing, um, that's whatever. It's it doesn't matter <laughs> fuddy duddies. It, sure that I'll go with that. Uh, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know what that is it's just that there's different ways to look at life there's different ways to solve problems just because i think it's one way doesn't mean your way is wrong and and that's what the show is kind of all about how did you get into the automation space to be the self-proclaimed automation nerd of of, in the industry that's a great question Uh, i actually started as a obviously i got a degree in engineering uh, I got. I went to Minnesota State Mankato. I studied automotive engineering there, and okay. I thought for sure when I went out, when I stepped off to college that I was going to be designing cars. Um, I have a, a, a passion for cars. I think they're awesome. They're my porn, so to speak. <laughs> like that's, that's why I spend my time looking at you know. And uh, but like I, the the <laughs> the more I got to know that industry, the more you know it really just wasn't for me no offense steve but uh like just detroit and then the, the culture there really around mm-hmm. the car industry just was not what i thought it would be and so you know my my first actual job as an engineer was as a, i actually started as an intern while i was still in school i, I worked at 3m and uh you know i had the good fortune of working on several projects while i was still in college like my 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 official senior design project was just a project from work so by the time i actually presented it it was actually old news at work were, and i was like you a, a post-it note guy were you yeah no 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 <laughs> but i was like i remember presenting on my senior design project in college and being like i i, I felt kind of like the salty old guy that had been around a while because all these other kids had never even worked yet and i'm like i like had to take time out of my day to come do this presentation i gotta go back to work after you know so that was my mm-hmm. long story short that was my indoctrination is uh, my, my very first big project at 3m was an automated project um, it was, it was, in, it involved, um, several different systems being used to, to solve a problem, save the company a bunch of money, got, you know, was, they were able to move an entire line back to, uh, where it came from, which saved them a lot of money on, you know, uh, supply chain, things like that. So that felt really good. And then that, when I graduated, they, they, uh, gave me my first real line. So at that time I was just an intern. So I was just running around being everybody's, uh, 
<laughs> project. Uh, um, project assistant, or do you want to say the real word? <laughs> I want to say the real word, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where this is going to end up, you know? Um, yeah. So I spent a lot of time, you know, just obviously being the newbie, you got to kind of earn your stripes. And so I would just kind of roam around, work the line with the operators and learn it try to find some problem that had been existed for years and be like, I'm, I'm the guy who's going to solve that problem. Um, and because I took the time to make friends with the operators, they would help me solve it. And they'd be like, oh, mm -hmm. okay, what you need to do, you know, or like, it just needs to do this. Um, and so when I moved to uh, Menominee, uh, Wisconsin, uh, I got my first real line and I took all that there and uh, immediately kicked off several automation projects and had quite a bit of success right away um, and, and just figured out right away, you know, I, my my superpower, like like it says on my LinkedIn, is really just more the project management of it. Like there's there's a certain nuance to automation, and it requires. I mean, there there's certainly project management in and of itself is a career path, but like automation is very nuanced. So you know, I learned very quickly what it took to get a project across the goal line, especially in corporate America where it takes you know thirty five signatures to to spend a dollar. <laughs> right. right. So. That was, you know, that's why, that's how I got into it was, you know, learning, learning how the businesses work in terms of getting money approved, uh, which I got really, really good at. So it allowed me to work on the projects I wanted to work on. And then, you know, learning how to scope out projects efficiently and, and sticking to the scope, which would be something I well, probably hey, Ian, four or five on. times. I'm out. I'm out. I'm I'm throwing the bullshit flag. Projects. Okay. Okay. Scope. Come on. Let's come on. Uh, we all. Pro come on. There has to be some scope creep along the way. We just can't do what we said we we're going to do. Somebody's got to change it for you halfway through and go, no, no, no. We'd like to go from three ounces to five ounces. <laughs> and then they ask why it isn't done yet. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Rush, this was supposed to be done. Six months ago. Why are we still working on this project? Because mm -hmm. you keep changing the yeah. darn scope on me. That's why. <laughs> Quit moving the goalpost on me, coach. That's right. <laughs> so one of the things you said there, Ian, is if we back up a couple minutes ago, you said you made friends with the operators. So since mm -hmm. we're a generation show, talk to us a little bit about that interaction when you know, you're coming in as the FNG. Somebody that, you know, people, when you're on the operation line, they look at you, go, you don't know shit. Mm -hmm. And how did you forge that relationship to then become the, you know, automation nerd? It's a great question. I mean, first of all, I mean, I, I, I'm, I am a blue, I grew up blue collar. I grew up, grew up working in factories and tire shops and, and earning my stripes, you know, day one on the job, you're just sweeping or you're holding the. You're holding the paint bucket or whatever it is, you know, the uh, whatever bearings, the, the hazing is for that job. Yeah, the muffler <laughs> um, bearings, liquor fluid, all that fun stuff. Got it. Yeah, you know, rotor wash and fucking <laughs> flight line and stuff like that. So, uh, I, you know, I did some. I, <laughs> so, I mean, really, I, I was very accustomed to that journey of like earning my stripes, um, and I don't see myself above anybody. The reason I went into engineering is because it interested me. Um, you know, I grew up around the Marine Corps. My, my dad did 23 years. He retired when I was nine. And one of the things he always said was like, you know, he, we, we lived on Camp Pendleton, watched helicopters flying and he'd always point up and be like, you know why I'm always walking and those dudes are always flying because they went to college that he would, and he's like, he would always harp on that. And so he's like, you're going to go to college. If you choose to walk, that's up to you. But, um, that was always his thing. So, you know, uh, 
going to college wasn't really a choice. So it was more about picking something I was interested in. So right. I went into engineering because I love taking things apart. I was the kid when I was a, when I was a kid. I would, you know, if, if a radio would break or something, I'd break, I'd take it apart, try to figure out why it broke, even if I had no hope of getting it back together. Um, but I had to know why it broke. And uh, yeah, so I mean, just in terms of that conversation, I mean, I I can I relate to a lot of people. Um, I spend time on the floor. It's one thing that. It, it's actually got me in trouble as an engineer. Like when I go back up to the office and I'm covered in dirt or like I worked at, uh, I worked at a semi-tractor manufacturer for a while and uh, the, the frame rails of a, of a semi-trailer are coated in this like sticky, disgusting goop. goop shit. Like it's this black tar stuff. Yeah. They just, yep. oh, it's disgusting. And so like when you go out there and work for five minutes, you end up covered in it. So it's like, fuck it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to get dirty. You know, I'm just going to do the job. So I, over the course of my first six months, like I would spend, you know, there's eight stations on that line. And I'd spend every, every day of the week, I would kind of work my way around. And there were certain mm -hmm. stations, there was kind of no point in working. Like some stations just did like one thing. So I didn't really need to, to work it, like drill that hole 500 times, you know? Yeah. Um, but some, some, you know, certain stations, there were like five or six processes happening at once. And certainly those represented the bottlenecks and where, you know, the most likely place to have a project would be. Um, and just honestly, right away, it shocked a lot of people that I was even out there, let alone holding a wrench, which right. again, I don't see myself mm -hmm. as above anybody, which, which I believe is why I've been successful. It's not because I'm smarter. It's not because I, you know, I have some crazy, you know, degree from some like Ivy league school. I went to a, average joe states run school nothing special well come on um, they got a great hockey program at mankato let's be they honest. do they do the mavericks uh, they know how to play blood, hockey um and that's, that's not a dig on msu it's just you know apparently there's a stigma amongst my peers um that i've had to overcome in every role mm -hmm. um, and so by the time i got to you know and i started as an engineer as an intern excuse me at, at 3m so by the time i got to my line at Menominee, I'd already been there two and a half years, so I kind of knew how 3M worked. So I really didn't have to worry about like learning the politics and things like that. So I just focused on my line. I really wanted to succeed. Um, it, it, frankly, it was a stretch for me. I had no idea what, like, they didn't tell me what line I was being hired for when they interview, interviewed me. So I didn't like lie. But like when they when they threw me on the line, I was like, this is not anywhere close to in my wheelhouse. Like, I'm an engineer, but like this is some space grade stuff here. I've know nothing about. So. Um, <laughs> You know, there was definitely a learning curve on that, but I, I learned very quickly it, that the operators know what they're doing. Like, yep, they've been doing this for mm -hmm. years. Like, they understand the process. Like, engineers often operate in a bubble, in a silo, yep. and they and the, no. honestly, it's not it's not a vindictive thing that oh, I've, I've worked with a lot. <laughs> um, Just you know, Steve, right, Steve, Steve's engineer. He's a covering engineer. Just so you know. get, it's okay. Okay, get your bullshit meter ready because well, oh, it's it's already on. See, it's included. I got it. Because <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think engineers mean to be the way they are. It's just personality thing. You know, the kind of person who gravitates towards that career. You know, kind of just has those those attributes. And you know, I don't want to be that guy. Basically, like I'm I'm social. I, I do want to. I don't necessarily need to be everyone's friend at work, but I want to at least be accepted. <laughs> You know, right. and then be seen yeah. as a as a part of the team, and yeah, I'll say one last thing. Just uh, also just working on the projects the operators want to work on, because a lot of times I walk up, you know, I'm working the line. I've been there for a few months. Like we're shooting the shit. Like we're on a first name basis, and then you know, I kind of probe about ideas. Like I throw ideas, just throw them out there. Like, hey, what if we build this? And I kind of just take the temperature of the line. Like if everyone's like, fuck that and idea, George it's stupid. 
George tells you to go get bent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So like, I'm like, okay, we're not going to work on that idea yet. Like, <laughs> um, we're not ready for that so, one so, yet. <laughs> um, so, so I hope that answers your question. Yeah. yeah. So, so, all right, you're the automation guy. You go through, you find opportunities, you talk to um, the workers on the, on the floor about what they'd like to do, what they'd like to see happen. So then when it actually does happen and their job changes in some way, shape or form, they're no longer doing the thing they hated every day, even though they say they hated it, but it's a change now for them. How do you, man- how are you going through that change management piece with them to facilitate the, that older worker to say, Oh, we're changing your job through this. Mm-hmm. How did you help facilitate that in that automation space to get them to see the value of not doing the same thing a thousand times over and over and over? Yeah, oh, I love that question. Um, first of all, be a, a big part of it is the the rapport that I built before even beginning the project, and and using that rapport to get those individuals to participate in the project. And and yeah. I go as far as I'll make sure that. Like in every group, there's always your, you know, we always talk about leaders, but no one ever talks about like stakeholders and influencers Correct. within a group. Mm-hmm. And I believe, you know, you can impact the whole group, but you don't just have to focus on the kernel, right? Because anyone yeah. who knows better knows that there's there's a few other echelons you really need to get buy-in from if you want, you know, things to go your way. So, you know, use that report, work with the influencers and g- get them and Definitely stakeholders, like people who's like if the one guy who says, you know, screw the boss and everybody agrees, you want to get that person as an ally early on and then get them to like, I literally would take them to uh, like the, we call them FATs, factor acceptance tests. So like as yep. the project progresses, the the, the vendor will take you, bring you on site, they'll buy you lunch, all they'll schmooze you and all, which is great. Good, good perk to the job. Yeah. Um, and then they're, the whole point of it is they show you like, what the machine is doing so you get an idea of what it's going to do on the flip side you maybe you bring in some parts and you test it and then they're trying to make sure that you have confidence in it when it arrives like yep it worked before it got here and so that's where you go to try to break it exactly yeah it's like oh we're not going to do a hundred we're going to do a thousand we're going to do ten thousand or whatever it takes and you know from from a from an engineering side and from a, a corporate side is I make sure I get enough money in the budget to do that, to do the tests correctly. Cause my projects work when they show up and I, and they, they work because I, I get the money approved early to make sure I can afford to do the testing that's necessary to, to, yep. to ensure that. Yeah. So there, so that, and then, you know, again, having those people accompany you and not just like, Hey, this is my, my buddy on my field trip with me. It's like this person, they have an assignment, they're there to participate. And then, I make them feel like their, their opinion of like this test is what matters to me. Like I've, if that makes sense, like I I make sure that the, 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 the culture of that event is such that the operators that I bring with me, I'm, I'm bringing them like almost like I'm the vendor, I'm dragging them along and I'm participating in the schmooze because ultimately I need them to like this project. I need them to point out things that are dumb before it arrives at the dock, yeah. ready to be installed. Stop it. See, then they can't, if they're involved, <laughs> if they're involved and they give you acceptance, they can't blame you then, Ian. Right. That's true. I mean, that's the hope. I mean, there's still, there's, yeah, that's the hope. Um, and so far I've had really, <laughs> yeah, so that, that is the, that is the hope. And, uh, and I've seen it go both ways. And I, I believe my way is the better one because, you know, and my numbers prove it, but 
um, you know, the, the, like the systems that I've, what's that? <laughs> Looking like a boomer. <laughs> There's some truth. We love the confidence. <laughs> we love the confidence. <laughs> As automation is coming in and job roles are changing in the factories, what are some of the things you see as a barrier with automation coming in for bringing in the Gen Z, that 26 and younger crowd? Uh, what are some of the opportunities that um, automation has to energize or excite youth into getting into manufacturing? Um, I'll, I'll say two things. Number one, you know, working with a robot or alongside a robot or an automated system that involves a robot. I think is a lot of fun. Again, I'm a nerd, so I might have a different opinion on things. But once you've done it, like it, it the robot should, done correctly, eliminate the mundane part of the job so you can focus on the cool part. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. It should, yep. it should give you a nice tempo, a nice pace, you know, and, and it, I don't know, every, every time I've implemented some form of a robotic system, uh, the operators always comment during install and during, during run up about the, like how it, it just like, it simplifies their job. And then in, on the flip side, there's a certain technical acumen necessary to actually work with systems around systems like that as an operator. So in every instance that I participated in, there's been a significant salary increase, you know, within, you know, whatever the, whatever the regular cycle is for, for income increases at, at an organization. You know, I've participated in those conversations before, during, and after the implementation of, of, of you know, automated, automation projects. And it's, it's fascinating to watch even management, like upper management, the way they see a job, like the value that an operator brings when there's like technology involved in them doing their job uh, versus, you know, let's say you're stuffing envelopes for a living, which is a job that a lot of people do in, in factories around the world. You know, like the robot can't do the whole job. Frankly, it's, it's mm-hmm. possible, but it's very, very, very costly and it's not very reliable. Humans are great at certain parts of that job. And if you eliminate the stupid parts, then it's not so bad of a job. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. So that, that, that'd be the how first one. Is, how do I get is... rid of my boss? He's the stupid part. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can, you automate, can you automate that out, Ian? <laughs> um, I, I, I will say that I think bosses will get better when you can point to a machine when things go wrong and set up a person. Uh, that's, that's one of my... Uh, selling points when I'm selling automation to operators and management as a whole mm-hmm. is, you know, if you can point to the process and say, this is what went wrong and you eliminate the human element. I mean, there's humans involved, but like you, the humans are trying to execute the process that's documented. The boss is beating his chest about the process, his or her chest about the process. So it's like, okay, well, boss, your process says do this, this, then this, and I did it. And here's the outcome. Then, mm-hmm. you know, go fix your process, you know, becomes right. the... <laughs> you know, the conversation. So it eliminates the, the emotion from it. And I think it results in much better. I love obviously that. cohesion. <laughs> I love um, the documentation. Results. I love that. Right. Cause that, cause that yeah. the robot, the automation piece will only do what you tell it to do. It's only as good as its inputs, right? You're only, mm-hmm. it will give you the output every single time based on the inputs you give it. And that part of it is the, that's the part that many organizations just struggle with. They just want to say, okay, just make it happen. Well, you just, yeah. automation isn't just poof, all of a sudden here it is. I got a product that comes out the end because we just put automation lines in. You still have to, yeah. you know, eliminate some things, maybe change some things, uh, possibly understand what your cycle times really can be. Um, Cause right. You could make the machine go 
10 times faster, but if you have no place to put the product, the machine's kicking out because the human's the next piece in line, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's, yeah, lots I've seen of, it. <laughs> there's lots of cool shit that you're working on. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, so I guess that was the kind of the, the I, I said I gave you two. So the first one was more on the, the people who are executing the projects, like the kind of the, I'll call it the micro level, yep. just the individuals who are, who are, you know, in the trenches. And then the other side would be in terms of a barrier is, you know, organizations like automation is, is a change of architecture. It's like building a house with, you know, wood and, you know, putting siding on it versus, you know, if you're going to intend to put a stucco on it, it's a completely different architecture, right? Yep. I mean, it doesn't necessarily take any longer to do either one, but there's, there's a, you have to approach building the house knowing that because there's a, there's, there's different things going different places. And with automation, a lot of times what I've seen is, you know, the ideas and the execution is all coming from the bottom up and management at very management gets the say, the final say. And a lot of times management, people who are in management have very finance heavy backgrounds, accounting, finance, <laughs> maybe some team management. So they're Ooh. very, <laughs> so they, you know. So when you start bringing in these really technical things, they don't see the buy-in. Like it's hard to get right. them to buy in on something they don't understand. And so mm -hmm. I, I would the, the the solution or the the approach I've been taking with some success is you know trying to work from the top down at my level because I know once I get on the floor, finding projects and executing that's the easy part. I've done it. I know how to do my job in that regard. But getting getting the right people to buy in on the right things and to free up resources, not just money resources. Like they need to assign people to this project because it's someone's going to own it after I leave, you yeah. know, <laughs> like, I, you know, I'm not sticking around putting in 30 years here. Like y'all can't afford me for that. So it's like, <laughs> like <laughs> that's not to be cocky. It's just, I'm not going to do the, it's just true. You know, it's not cocky. It's, if it's yeah. true. It's okay. <laughs> But like, you know, we, we, I'm sure you guys have seen it, like the, the someone implements some new thing and like the, the they have a team of gurus come in and help and then they leave and the whole thing falls on its face because nobody learned it. You know, no one no one was there to, to support it. So or, or um, better yet is you use the gurus, you put together a whole system in place, you uh, get acquired in the middle of it. And then nobody likes the new way of doing it. So we're going to do it the old shitty way that we've been doing it for 40 years. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. That's always fun too. And very demoralizing. That's a blast <laughs> also. Or you end up using both. You have a new <laughs> system that you use sort of sometimes. That's and then true. You're, you're still referring to the old system to get information. Then you're dumping it in the new system and then you're, you're bringing it back to the old system. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. it can get real gross real quick. The one, one question that I have for you is as you're working with all these companies on their automation, what would be one suggestion that you have for them that would aid in attracting the younger talent? When I worked at 3M, one of the things I learned was that when they moved to, to Menominee to open that factory, they sent their recruiting team to the schools in the area. Like they went in like, you know, 30 miles in every direction. And they recruited kids right out of high school. And they're mm -hmm. like, look, you can go to college if you want. But if that's not in your future, if that's not in your, your just come work for us. We'll teach you. We'll give you these trades. And you're going to make more than anyone in town. We're going to take good care of you, great benefits. And like a lot of the people I worked with, 
a lot of my stakeholders that I was talking about before have been around for like, I think 33 years, which happened to be the exact age of that factory. Um, and a lot of them were there through multiple generations of my line, but also lines that had come and gone. Lines that 3M was into, you know, 20 years ago that, you know, fizzled out. So honestly, I think that the majority of the younger generation is being educated for like life a hundred years ago. And they're like the, the world has come a long way in 50 years, let alone a hundred. And they had like, they're not, they don't leave high school prepared to even learn what I'm talking about, but they have at least the basic fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And in the old day, like in the old days, I mean, like the hey, generation careful. I'm speaking about. Careful, careful, <laughs> be very careful. I'll take offense. There, there was a time when companies like IBM, Motorola, um, Boeing, Lockheed, you know, Intel, they would they would bring people out of school and say, "Hey, go to college if you want, or you can come do on this this career path." And there was education steps along that way, yep. mm-hmm. apprenticeships and things like that, where they would give them, they'd pay them more than they were actually worth at the time, right? They would overpay them a little bit to, you know, because they're committing to this like two-year program, right? When in the end, they're only going to be useful at that company. Correct. Um, and then when they get to the end of that that course or that that time, they have a great job waiting for them. So in terms, in my opinion of it, and I'm still working on this one, it's something that I, I think a lot about, is or, like, especially the enterprises, like big, large or corporations, they they have the bandwidth to do this is, you know, they have resources internally to, to train. They already have people that are experts on topics. And especially when you look at the aging generation that's that's in the process of retiring over the next 10 years, like mm-hmm. you can't bring in one person six months before they leave and expect them to pick up 35 years of experience. Oh, come on. Okay. Ian, Ian, okay, we're just going to call. See, this is where you millennials think that it's like, oh, we oh. can't learn anything. In, we can't figure out 35 years of information in six months. It happens all the time. What are you talking about? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> Not effective or efficient, but it happens all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there, there's definitely – Something to be said for, you know, bringing in new ideas and new cultures yep. and diversity. Things like that. I'm not downplaying that. In fact, I, I, I'm, I'm encouraging it. But I do think there needs to be a systematic approach to passing of information. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at I mean, I'll just use the military because it's something you know, I spent my entire life around it. Like the reason the military is consistently good, you know, like America wasn't just good that one year. Like we're good every year. You know, um, and it's because we have this system in place to pass knowledge and pass experiences down the food chain. Um, it's why a blood stripe means something to a Marine, right? It, it, it's not just a red stripe on his pants. There's actually a significance to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that passing of tradition. It's the passing of knowledge that keeps our military, even with this, using the same generation we're talking about, you know, um, we're, our, our military continues to be you know, an outstanding fighting force um, and the example for the rest of the world immediately because of that, that passing of information. So that's my answer is, you know, okay. organizations seeing that and instead of waiting for someone to get to retirement, all of a sudden want to replicate them, find a way to, you know, offload that information. And it's going to take three or four people to yep. replicate that, per- that one person who happens to have stuck around for 35 years. Um, you're not going to replace them with one other person. And why would you <laughs> put all your eggs in one basket? Well, because we created the unicorn, so we're going to try to find the unicorn, and that's where <laughs> the problem exists is we're trying to go unicorn hunting. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So, 
so Ian, as uh, as our listeners are coming through and they're thinking about their type of automation projects that they've been pondering, but they couldn't find the right guy to do it, and we happen to have the right guy on our show to go out and do these things, how would they get a hold of you, find you, uh, connect with you, um, embrace your nerdiness to come into their factory to <laughs> solve their problems? Uh, honestly, the most efficient way is LinkedIn. I mean, you, yeah, it's the most efficient way. You can DM me. I'm not, I'm not that famous, so I don't have to like. Uh, not yet. <laughs> filter anything. Yeah, maybe someday, but uh, um, yeah, LinkedIn's probably the most efficient. Ian, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule and uh, sharing with us your story, your automation stories, your passion for um, making manufacturing organizations better, stronger, faster, more nimble and receptive across all generations. So thank you for, for your time today. We really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Thank you for listening to Blue Collar BS, brought to you by Vision Forward Business Solutions and Professional Business Coaching, Inc. If you'd like to learn more on today's topic, just reach out to Steve Doyle or myself, Brad Herta. Please like, share, rate, and review this show as feedback is the only way we can get better. Let's keep blue-collar businesses strong for generations to come.